right, now a few people probably know something that happens in the month of February that is usually a big deal in the United States. Can anybody think of what it might be? Okay, somebody got it already, right off the bat. Right off the bat. You know, over the last 20 years or so, uh, there has been a growing participation in what is known as fantasy football. And if you have no interest or awareness of what that is, which is just fine, uh, let me tell you a little bit about it just for the sake of illustration, all right? Uh, in fantasy football, you don't actually play or even coach football, right? You choose people who actually do play football to be on your team, sometimes on a season-long basis, sometimes on a weekly basis, possibly even on a daily basis. And in many leagues, you then pay money to guess how well those players will perform. Uh, so it's a form of gambling. And there are television shows and radio shows and podcasts entirely dedicated to fantasy football. There are publications being written uh, in hard copy and online. There are thousands of people whose jobs are funded by the fantasy football industry. And believe it or not, uh, the total market share for fantasy football last year was $18.6 billion, which is more than professional football made on its own. There were over 40 million fantasy football players in the United States from the age of 12 and up spending on average $465 each on fantasy football during the year. Now, the average fantasy football player uh, spends 18 hours a week watching sports and then an additional nine hours a week working on their fantasy leagues. And the fascination with fantasy sports lasts in uh, the people who do it for an average of nine and a half years. Now, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the whole thing. Okay, I've never played. Uh, once again, these aren't people who play sports, right? They never go on a field. They don't touch or kick a ball, but they spend a lot of time and a lot of money on guessing which players who really do play football will play well or play poorly. And cumulatively, they spend more than the entire revenue of an actual football league in a year. Now, why am I telling you this story? Well, I'm afraid that the era of fantasy sports is also quickly becoming the era of fantasy Christianity, where people don't really get on the field and participate in God's kingdom purposes, but they feel like they do, even though they're just watching from the sidelines. And our February series is called Get in the Game. You know, God did not call us to be fans of New Testament ministry. He didn't call us to play fantasy Christianity. He called us to be on-the-field participants in Christian ministry. But what does that mean? We're going to get into God's Word this morning and find out. And our first text passage is in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. The notes are provided there in your bulletin. They're also on the YouVersion app for you today. And, of course, we have kids' bulletins as well. 1 John chapter 3, turn there with me in your Bibles uh, or on your Bible apps. 
as you're turning, remember that two weeks from today, we have Next Step classes 101 and 201 available, and you can register for those at servechurch.org. If you have any questions about those classes ever, we'd be happy to answer those questions. Okay, here we go. First John chapter 3, starting at verse number 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, this passage describes a Christian walk that no one else can do for you. You have to actually participate in this for yourself, all right? There are some things that only you can do for yourself, right? Uh, there's nobody else who can eat your oatmeal for you. you got to eat it yourself, right? Uh, there's nobody else uh, who can go and do your work for you at your job. Usually, hopefully, you have to do it yourself. Yeah, as we get into these verses, these are things that only you can do for yourself. This morning, we're going to see four parts of the passage. And uh, let's start with verse number 16, perceiving love. Perceiving love. Now, the love of God is one of the most evident things anywhere. We can know it. We can perceive it. How? Well, we can look at what Jesus did for us. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Matthew 20, 28 says it this way, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The evidence is indisputable. He laid down his life for us. Now, love is a sentiment. Uh, it's a feeling, but love isn't just a feeling. It's an action. And uh, Jesus didn't come uh, just to feel and to talk about feelings. He came to act. You think about the life of Jesus. He didn't come to be entertained. Uh, he wasn't a consumer looking for a life of leisure, looking to meet his own needs. He practiced and performed what he preached. Everything that he said he would do, he did. And uh, through his love, we understand what love is. His example, laying down his life, becomes our highest ideal, laying down our lives for the brethren. Now, uh, in our example this month of get in the game and football, uh, when you talk about football and battling in the trenches or uh, camaraderie in the locker room or leaving it all on the field together, uh, the talk is never about the fans up in the stands, okay? Uh, it's about players down on the field. Now, when I was growing up, uh, back then, we felt like we were in the heyday of football, like Joe Montana, Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, Steve Largent, John Elway, like real football players. And, 
And we talked about players. Uh, we never said, hey, did you catch that guy up in section E in the stands yesterday? Uh, wow, he was impressive, right? Did you see that guy who ran on the field during the game just to get attention? I wonder what his name was. No, we talked about uh, people who did something significant to win the game. And, and we talked about some of the players because we liked them. We talked about some of the players because we didn't like them, right? Maybe it was Lawrence Taylor. He broke the quarterback's leg. Uh, or Jim McMahon, who was constantly a punk. Uh, some people really didn't like Bill Romanowski. Uh, one time he spit on an opposing player. And another time he punched his own teammate in the face during the game. Uh, but once again, they only got talked about because they were in the game. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, uh, there were people all over the known world who were talking about his mighty works, his amazing stories, his kindness to children, his acts of compassion. On the other hand, uh, he had other people, the Pharisees, namely, who absolutely hated him. They hated him. And sometimes the people who hate you say a lot about you as a person, huh? Uh, but everybody was talking about Jesus. Why? Because he was on the field. He was doing the works. And fans aren't the ones taking the heat in criticism. Players are, coaches are, participants, people involved in the action. And so when we perceive the love of God, we understand that Jesus has participated in this love for us and that we should participate in this love toward each other. Verse 16, at the end of the verse, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, And, and that's a very simple wording there. Uh, it means that we should be able to, to give up and to be unselfish with our lives for other people. Uh, not only in life, but sometimes even to the point of death. Now, let's talk about verse number 17, shutting down compassion. Look at the phrase in the middle of verse 17, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. Okay, so it says you have this world's good, you see that your brother has a need, but you don't do anything about it. And God says, listen, if you have the ability to meet the need of your brother and you see that he has a need and you don't meet his need, you don't have any compassion. Now, you might think you have compassion, but God says you don't have any compassion. Without action, there is no real compassion. There's a short verse in the book of Jude that says this, Jude verse 22, and of some have compassion making a difference. You know, real compassion does that. Uh, seeing a need is the starting point, but doing something about the need is the evidence of God's love in us. Uh, I want you to turn to, back to James chapter 2 for just a second, because this is a, a verse that we'll mention uh, now and then again at the end of the service. So in James chapter 2, <clears throat> James is talking about this test of faith, uh, this test of good works. Uh, does faith breed works or does works breed faith? And, and he's doing this whole discussion on it. 
And look what he says here in James chapter 2, verse number 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Now this is a profound picture. He says if, if you are in the assembly, if you're in church, and your brother or sister has absolutely nothing, and you have plenty, and yet you walk up with your plenty and say to them, hey, uh, you know, I hope everything goes for you, well for you. I hope you get the food you need. I hope you get the clothes you need. Uh, depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. But you don't do anything about it, then it's just empty words. And empty words, God says, shut down authentic compassion. Empty words actually sabotage compassion. They don't lead to compassion. They sabotage it. They take away from compassion. You know, there's nothing more frustrating than someone who talks like and acts like he cares but never does anything, right? And we all fall in this category from time to time. We desperately want people to think that we're outwardly, we are outwardly religious and compassionate. We want people to think that we have hearts uh, that care. And uh, we know how to talk a good game. But in reality, is compassion actually taking place? Now, there was a football team years ago that's actually still around called the Miami Dolphins. And 50 years ago, they were the greatest team in the game. And if you ask them, they'll still tell you that they're the greatest team there ever was. In 1972, uh, the year I was born, the Miami Dolphins had the perfect season. And every year, the ones who are still living celebrate the perfect season. And then in the 80s, they had a short rise back to greatness uh, when their quarterback was a young man named Dan Marino. Uh, but since then, there hasn't been much going on. They're just kind of up and down and all over the place. And, uh, and the owner of the team is a billionaire named Stephen Ross. And he has been the majority owner since 2008. And uh, Stephen Ross has always talked a good game. Uh, press conferences, you know, we want to put the best product on the field. And, and we want to win every game we can. And we want to get back to the playoffs. And we want to draft quality players. Uh, well, this past week, a former Dolphins coach sued the team and the league, alleging that the owner, Mr. Ross, had offered uh, the coach $100,000 every time the team lost. Did you hear what I just said? The owner allegedly offered the coach $100,000 every time the team lost. Now, how many of you hear that? You're like, what? Are we, what? I, isn't the whole goal to win? Didn't he say to win? Well, listen, if the allegations are true, it means that the whole time Mr. Ross is out there making these public statements about win, 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 he secretly was paying somebody or trying to pay somebody to lose, lose, lose so that he could get higher draft picks. 
And here, here's the whole point. External image does not equal real compassion. Compassion that makes a difference has to actually meet needs. Now, here, here's what you learn over time in life. Fans talk, players play. In Christianity, consumers consume and contributors contribute. And the rest of the message deals with this crucial practical verse, verse 18. And this is the verse, main verse we want to cover here today. So if you're back in 1 John 3, let me read verse 18 again, and then we're going to break it down into two parts as we finish out the message. So verse number 18, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so let's talk first about in word or tongue, in word or tongue. Every week, uh, during football season, there are thousands and thousands of hours used by fans commenting about the performance of their team. Uh, there are social media posts, radio calls, interactive television shows. And out of those thousands and thousands of hours used on commenting, you know how much of it actually benefits the team? Well, some people would say None. Right? He just said it. Some people would say none of it. And in fact, most coaches teach their players to not listen to the distraction of the commentators or the comments from the crowd uh, because it'll distract them. It'll take them away from what's really important. And there are millions of Chicago Bears fans, uh, all with their own opinions of how to improve the team. Right? None of them actually play on the team. None of them coach the team, but they've got all the answers. Right? There are millions of Seahawks fans who know how to fix all the problems. Just ask them. Uh, along with the fans, there are also professional journalists and commentators who get paid to talk about a game that they've either never played or no longer play. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? And today, of course, in this series, as an illustration, we're talking about a temporal game like football that doesn't really matter in the big picture of life, right? You may know who won the Super Bowl in 1975, but when you go to eternity, it won't matter at all, right? You may know who the great team was with the awesome defense in 1985, but it won't matter when you get to eternity, and it's a temporal thing. It's an earthly thing. But in our message, in our series, we're talking about an eternal, an eternal battlefield where the stakes matter forever. And John here says, let us not love in word or in tongue. In other words, God didn't call his children to be commentators. God didn't call his children to be commentators. He never asked us to stand around judging each other's Christian performance. By the way, there are Christian publications and all sorts of social media sites that exist basically for the purpose of talking about how well or how poorly Christians or Christian leaders are doing. 
You know, wasting time talking about earthly things is time you won't get back. It's trivial. It doesn't last. But wasting time talking about people on the spiritual battlefield can also be a giant waste, especially if you aren't on the battlefield yourself. There are so many experts who never do anything themselves, right? Remember Dr. Ruth Westheimer, the great marriage expert who had never been married? Right? You get these marriage experts and you look in their background, they've been divorced four times. You're like, what in the world? You have these child experts, child psychologists who are going to tell you how to parent children. They have no kids. Right? There are so many experts who never do anything. There's a lot of Christian experts who teach in seminaries. And they've been teaching in the seminary for 25, 30 years. They've never led one soul to Jesus Christ. Not one. That's what I call empty experts. People who are not really in the game. They can fix everybody's problems but their own. And when we stand before God, I just doubt that he's going to say, you know, your critiquing skills were impressive. They were out of this world. You were one of the best fault finders I ever created. You could lay out a case against other people like very few of your peers. And God says, you're a passive-aggressive manner of highlighting everybody else's issues while avoiding your own, that was impressive. No. No, 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 and no. All the time spent as a commentator will be utterly useless, wasted, and only what's done for Christ will last. He expects every one of us to be an active participant in his kingdom purposes. What are God's kingdom purposes? Worship, ministry, evangelism, fellowship, and discipleship. And uh, there is no calling to watch other people do God's purposes. There's not one. There's only a calling to do God's purposes. Right? You never find a calling in the New Testament that says, hey, you guys come over here. I want you to sit in these bleachers and watch all the Christians do their Christian stuff and then take notes on where they mess up, right? That's not in there. God says, get in the game, get busy, and do the work. And we're talking about empty words, words that aren't backed up by action. Now, be careful here, because when you see this, uh, don't love in word or tongue, we're not talking here about encouraging words, Right? Encouraging words in the New Testament are followed up with real compassion. Encouraging words are followed up with real action. Encouraging words in Scripture uh, build other people up. They don't tear other people down. Uh, I'm reminded of this verse from Proverbs. Uh, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. And uh, whatever the word picture means, it comes down to this, it refreshes the soul. It refreshes the soul. And it is true. A word fitly spoken, 
An encouraging word at the right time can refresh your soul like nothing else, right? And you remember the saying when you were a kid, uh, sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a bunch of hogwash, right? Words do hurt. In fact, God says this in Proverbs, the words of a talebearer, a gossip, slanderer, are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. What does that mean? It means empty words cause pain. And if you're sitting here this morning, I guarantee you there are words that have caused you pain before. Whether they're real words or somebody said they were words, you imagined somebody said something, it caused you pain. Vain words hurt people. James says that the tongue is a little member that boasts great things. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. You don't know how bad slander can hurt until you're the recipient of slander. You don't know how bad gossip can sting until you've been stung by it. James says that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Wow. I remember when I was in about sixth or seventh grade, we had an evangelist for a revival meeting, and it was Sunday morning, and he said, I want everybody to come back tonight. Everybody make sure you come back to church on the Sunday night service. Tonight, I'm going to tell you the worst member in the church. And everybody started looking around. How does he know? Like he's not, he doesn't even go here. This is, he comes here like once a year. How does he know the worst member in the church? And so he came back that night, and he got up, and everybody came. Like the whole church was there, right? They want to know who the worst member is. Eh? And uh, some people who hadn't been there for years showed up. Like we didn't even know you were still alive. And here you came, right? It's like when you have a business meeting. Sometimes people show up like that, come out of the woodwork. He showed up, and he said, tonight I'm going to tell you the worst member in the church. And he got down, and he's one of those preachers that walked around while he preached. And I never do this, especially now because we're trying to broadcast. But uh, he'd walk down, and he'd stand right in front of people. And they'd be looking up like this, right? And uh, they, they really weren't under conviction, but they just felt really weird because he kept spitting on them. Right? And he just, he'd walk down, he'd go around. And so he's walking around, he's quoting uh, James chapter 3 about uh, our words and what we say. And he'd, I'm going to tell you tonight who the worst member in this church is. And he'd walk in one section, everybody, their heads would go over there. They'd look over there, who in that section? Oh, <laughs> that, that guy over there, maybe, yeah. That woman, oh, it's possibility. And he'd look over here, and some people, you thought that they may cry out on their own, it's me, it's me. The conviction was so heavy. And so then he walks right back up by the communion table, down in the front, and he comes back behind the communion table, and he says, the worst member in this church, and he reaches down behind the communion table, and he, he pulls out this giant cow tongue, and he slaps it on the communion table, 
And he said, the worst member in this church is the tongue. And the cow saliva went everywhere. And I, ah! Right? It was, uh, it was a little crazy. I mean, it wasn't like having snakes in church. It's probably even more crazy. But it was crazy. It was uh, just kind of this weird dynamic. And here's this cow tongue laying on the communion table. And then he preached a message about the tongue. But you know, Proverbs 18 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they are. Death and life are in the power of a tongue. When your words are backed up with compassionate actions, that brings life. When your words are backed up by destructive action, that brings death. And I'm convinced there's going to be a lot of souls that spend all eternity without Christ. And you know what they'll say? It was because of that Christian. Now, it's on them. They chose not to follow Jesus with their lives. But they're going to blame it on a Christian and a Christian's words. And words really do matter. I remember when I was a little kid, there was this investment group called E.F. Hutton. And they made some really good commercials back in the day. And the signature line at the end of the commercial was this. When E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. Right? And they had this real deep voice. When E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. Right? And there would be this room of people talking to each other. And, and they're having a good time and they're talking. And then you would see E.F. Hutton start to open his mouth. And as soon as he started to open his mouth, everybody leaned in, and they shut their mouth, and they stopped talking. Why? They wanted to hear what he had to say. And there was a reason why everybody listened to old EF. You know why? It's because he hardly ever talked. So his words meant more. Here's what I've found. People with great wisdom hardly ever talk. Right? They hardly ever talk. But fools talk all the time. You can't get them to shut up with no concept of how hurtful their words might be. The other thing about people with wisdom is this. It's important to realize they back their words up with action. That's why they gain respect. When you back up your words with action, people will respect you. Now, we're going to tie this all into this last part of verse number 18, where it says, but in deed and in truth. And let's talk about this fourth part of the message, in deed and in truth. Saying it is one thing. Doing it is another. In 1916, uh, Woodrow Wilson won the presidential election, and the slogan uh, for his election was this, he kept us out of war. All right, that was the slogan. Woodrow Wilson, election, 1916. He kept us out of war. You know what happened the next year? He led the U.S. in the World War I. He kept us out of war. Uh, in 1964, Lyndon Johnson said, we're not about to send American boys nine or 10,000 miles from home to do what those boys over there should be doing themselves. And just during his presidency, the U.S. entered the Vietnam War. 
No matter how you judge that, what I'm talking about is the words and the actions. Uh, Some people might remember this one. In 1988, at his convention, George H.W. Bush stood up at the convention and he said, read my lips. No new taxes. And that was in his thousand points of light speech. Barbara and I are going to take the dog and we're going up to County Bunkport. No new taxes. Right? If you remember, you remember. If you don't, you have no idea what I just said. And then he signed a bill raising taxes. And everybody bailed on him. And he lost his reelection campaign to the governor of Arkansas, William Jefferson Clinton. And the rest is history. You know, intentions are only good if they're followed up by action. Otherwise, they're just empty. And how many politicians have told us that we need to reduce the national debt, which, by the way, recently went over $30 trillion, with a T, dollars. Uh, how many have told us, you know what we need? We need to put in term limits. And then they stay in term after term after term. How many have told us we need a balanced budget only to vote to raise the debt ceiling again? Here's an idea. If you intend to do something, just do it. And Jesus said it this way. Let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay. You know, back in the old days, guys would make a handshake deal, and they'd be good to their word. There's no fine print. There were no special clauses. There were no extra summaries. There were no lawyers standing around. If they said it was going to get done, it got done. That's how Christians are supposed to be. We're not supposed to have to go back and say, well, if you go into paragraph 2, section 1, in the sentence right there, there's a clause that has this deniability. Right? Uh, There's this out where I don't have to do what I actually said. That's not how Christians are supposed to act. We're supposed to let our yea be yea and our nay be nay. And the fact is, the best of intentions will make no difference in our world. Intentions don't do anything for anybody. Making a difference requires active compassion. That is not concerned with notoriety or applause. In the modern world, There's this trend, and it's not all a negative trend, but we should bring it up. There's this trend of showing compassion on social media, and nothing wrong with offering encouragement through every means we can. But you know, if we think that making a comment on Instagram is going to change the world with Christ's compassion, then we're a little naive, right? We have to balance our virtual encouragement with in-person action. Otherwise, we turn out to be what we mentioned from James earlier. People who say, hey, I hope everything gets better. Oh, well, that's too bad. We're going to be praying about that. I sure hope you get what you need. God didn't call us to be talkers. He called us to be actors. 
He called us to get in the game, be people of action, take the lead, make a real difference. And I know why most people don't want to get in the game, because helping people always costs you something. It always does. It may cost you effort. It'll certainly cost you time. It may cost you resources. Sometimes the people you help the the most end up stabbing you in the back and hurting you in return. You know, we don't do what we do for the sake of the people we do it for. We do it for Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that we love in deed and in truth because Jesus loved in deed and in truth. And uh, we can't live by empty words. It's not going to just be cheering or criticizing from the bleachers that changes the world. That brings us to today's faith challenge. You can cheer or criticize from a distance, but you can only participate on the field. You got to get on the field. You can cheer from the top row of the bleachers. You can criticize from the top row of the bleachers, but you can only participate on the field. You have to get in the game to make a difference. Monday morning quarterbacks don't ever move others forward in God's kingdom. They may have all the answers and they may know all the stuff, but they don't ever get in the game. And here's what I love about the kingdom of God. You don't have to be in the gifted or talented program to get on the field, right? I played high school basketball. I know this is hard to believe. Say, why would you try to play basketball? Have you ever measured yourself? Um, Yeah, I played high school basketball. And a varsity team, my senior year, I only got in like two games. Uh, Why? Because I wasn't in the gifted and talented program. Uh, You know what I love about the kingdom of God? You can just show up and get on the field. You just volunteer. You just live as the hands and feet of Jesus. There is no height requirement for the kingdom of God. Thank the Lord. But there is no speed requirement. You don't have to run a 40-yard dash in 4.3 seconds to make the team. If you're a child of God, you're on the team. You don't have to be well-known. You don't have to have a resume of great things you've done in the past. You just have to show up. And listen, you can't help everybody. Nobody can. But you can help somebody. And this series is about getting in the game. But you know, it all starts with a heart that is at one with God. You have to want what God wants. As we close in prayer this morning, would you ask God to give you a heart toward people like he has? If our goal is to serve God by serving others, then we're going to need the mind and heart of Christ to do it. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you that we could come this morning to be challenged by your word. And Lord, there's really... None of us who have all of this figured out. We all struggle to balance our words and our actions. We all struggle with having real compassion. And so I pray that as we start this series, that you would give us hearts for God that are real, that are authentic, 
And that as we learn the steps of serving you by serving others here in our community, in our church, in our family, that you would help us to follow through on the New Testament commands that you've given. Guide us now through this week. Guard our testimonies before you.